Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you could be with us today. I'd like to talk about a father's grace from Luke chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 32 sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's been my privilege to visit the Taj Mahal a couple times in the course of my ministry. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, man-made wonders, built in 1653 as a tomb for Emperor Shah Jahan's beloved wife named Mumtaz when she died giving birth to their 14th child. The white marble and detail of the engraved semi-precious jewels is just amazing. It's called the Jewel of Muslim Art in India, and everything is built in perfect symmetry also. For example, the minarets at each of the four corners are built at a five-degree angle, leaning out so that, so that if there's an earthquake, they will fall away from the edifice. And the water pools in the front of the Taj line up with the center of the tomb inside and reflect the beauty of the building. The actual bodies of Mumtaz and Shah Jahan rest in a chamber below the shrine because Muslim tradition forbids elaborate decoration of a burial tomb. But one can view the mock caskets above ground. They are intricately carved and inlaid with semi-precious jewels of all different colors. And when I was there, my friend pointed out the 99 names for the Muslim god that were carved around the top of the princess's tomb. One name might be conspicuously absent for us Christians. It's the name Father not to be found. It's a name we take for granted, but it's missing from Muslim designations. And as far as I know, it's not used by any other religions for God. Father seems to be a unique term for the Christian God and a term that God himself seems to prefer. It's used of him 15 times in the Old Testament, 245 times in the New Testament. It was Jesus Christ's most frequently used name for God. He taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And our spirits cry out, according to Paul, Abba, Father. Obviously, God wants us to know him in such a way. I think there's a great benefit in using Father in our relationship to God. That benefit comes in one of two ways. For those who had a human father who was gracious and loving, there was a convenient paradigm that allowed children to respond more easily in faith to have a relationship with God as their father. Others might come from an entirely different orientation. For these, an early father, an earthly father, was such a negative experience that it hindered trust in their heavenly father. For example, I know a young lady, and when I heard her testimony, she said that she went to a church, and a pastor was asking people uh, to trust in Christ as their Savior, and when he talked to her, he said, wouldn't you like to know God as your father? And because she had suffered terrible abuse by her father, she said, I already had one of those. I don't want another one. So for people like that, coming to know God as father covers a multitude of parental sins and abuses and can actually correct uh, the poor image of a father they might have. And so now God the father can become the father they never had uh, and they can experience his love and come to know him intimately and experiences grace. And so he becomes a new paradigm even for their own parenting. In God as our Father, 
love and grace meet. You see, grace is God's active expression of God's love, and love is God's unconditional desire for our welfare. And grace is his manifestation or conveyance of that love. How can we grow in grace unless we understand the heart of the Father more? Many of us understand grace, but it does not affect us as it should because it has not penetrated our emotions. I think the stories in Luke chapter 15 are designed to connect with us emotionally, especially the familiar parable of the prodigal uh, that does it by framing for us terms of, uh, in, in terms of something very familiar and emotional, that is, the family relationship. It portrays a father's love and a father's grace needed by two errant sons, uh, told to an unloving and ungracious audience of Pharisees. In the context, Jesus was answering the Pharisees who criticized his love for sinners at the beginning of the chapter. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then in verse 2 of chapter 15, we read, so he, Jesus, spoke this parable to them. In three stories, Jesus illustrates God's love for sinners. It's a priority love, an amazing love, and a misunderstood love. There's the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost son. Each time, there's rejoicing when the lost item is found. Now, some will debate whether this story is about unsaved sinners coming to God or about saved sinning Christians being restored. Surely it's safe to assume that the primary audience was the Pharisees in the context of the Jewish nation and its rebellion against the Messiah. Uh, God welcomed all those Jews who would come to him from the rebellious nation. But we must also observe that the story is recorded only in Luke, largely thought of as a book primarily to Gentiles. Gentiles must also know what the Father's attitude toward them is. Likewise, anyone, Christian or non-Christian, who sins against God needs to know the Father's love and acceptance towards them. So is it really necessary to debate whether the parable serves the Jews, the unsaved, or the saved? Doesn't this miss the main message, which is that God loves those who sin, forgives them, restores them, and rejoices over them? Let's look at verses 11 through 16 first. Then he said, Jesus said, a man, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. If I have anything unique to contribute to the reams of material and innumerable sermons that have expounded this story, it may be this, my first point, and it's this. God the Father gives freedom. This is where the grace of God starts, I believe. Usually treatments of the parable point to the grace of the Father's forgiveness, as I will do in a little while. But we shouldn't hurry there. Consider what the Father did first. I find it extraordinary. He gave his son the inheritance that he asked for and allowed him to make a terrible decision and pursue a reckless and dangerous path. Boy, I'm glad God never allowed me to do that. Ha ha. The truth is, God allows us to sin, and we have to fit that into the story of love and grace as much as we do his forgiveness and restoration. How can a loving father allow a son to sin so severely? I suggest to you that he had no other option as a loving and gracious father. 
He could have shackled his son to the doorpost until he submitted or conformed, but that would be humiliating and steal his dignity. Sometimes the father has to assume the best of a son or daughter even when he knows full well that the odds favor failure. In fact, it's probably characteristic of fathers and God also that they expect more failure of us than we expect of ourselves. That's why to have a child is to consciously choose to unconditionally love and forgive that child before he or she ever fails. The scriptures tell us that love hopes all things. It looks for the best. Don't we all have an innate understanding that if love is to be genuine and grace is to be amazing, it has to give us freedom to make choices, choices that conform to God's holy will, or choices that reject his will. But that freedom is essential to a mutual loving relationship. Freedom is scary, but freedom is required of love. I like a TV commercial where made by Subaru, where a father is leaning into a car with the car keys, and he's talking to his daughter behind the wheel, who looks like she's about five or six years old. And he's telling her to be careful, put your seatbelt on, and so forth. And then the camera cuts back to him holding the car keys and handing them to her. And when the camera cuts back to her, she's a grown woman. The point of the commercial is that the father loves the child and wants the best for her, but he has to give her her freedom at some point. He has to give her the car keys. How many can feel the trepidation of that loving dad turning over the car keys? Uh, that kind of love is the basis of all God's gracious actions towards us. The first gift of grace that God gives us is our free will. He gives us the car keys. I prefer to call it moral self-determination. This is a gift in the category of common grace given to all human beings. It makes us distinctly human. Forced love is not love at all. It's called rape. But there are no shotgun weddings in heaven. God is only glorified when we freely choose to love him over every other. He gains nothing from forced love. Indeed, there really is no such thing. As spoken by a character in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, I think a demon, saying this, merely to override a human will, uh, he says, would be for him, God, useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. Every parent has had moments when they wish technology could provide a computer chip when implanted in our child's mind would make him or her declare his or her love for us and obey us perfectly. Though convenient and neat, this, of course, would become a hollow and meaningless relationship. It would not fulfill our desire to be loved, nor would it dignify the child or honor us. It seems, then, that sin is the misuse of freedom. From the first freedom granted to Adam when God said, You may eat of any tree of the garden, there has been misuse of freedom, and God has held us humans accountable. He said to Adam in uh, Genesis 3.13, You ate of it, holding him accountable. This gracious gift of freedom from the Father is a risky gift, but freedom is always a bit risky. There's always the possibility, usually the probability, of misuse. In this story, the Father gives his sons his inheritance early. The text says, quote, he divided to them his livelihood in verse 12. The word livelihood is the word bias in the Greek language, which you recognize as the root for the idea of biological life. And it here has the meaning of one's possessions or the things that are necessary for living. Largely, this meant his land and probably his livestock. The father was digging deeply into that upon which his life depended, probably selling much of his land. Such was the depth of his gift. It would require the sale of assets, the rearranging of finances, the paying off of debt, a change of lifestyle. 
sometimes when my wife uh, and I take off and we do something fun, we joke with our children that we are spending their inheritance. Well, we couldn't do that if we gave it to them prematurely. Inheritance are meant to be possessed only after the death of the principal. To request an early inheritance is to be disrespectful of the life from which it springs and even to be an implicit death wish. This story should cause us to pause and recognize the gifts that God has given us. First, he's dignified us with moral self-determination, the freedom to choose. Then, he's given to us all things richly to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6.17 says. We have life, food, work, family, friendships, warm blankets, and grand mocha lattes. Not only has he given us what is needed to sustain and enjoy life, he gives us the greater gift that allows us to live forever and enjoy him, that is, his son, Jesus Christ. Yet the history of mankind, the history of Israel, and our own personal story is that we misuse the freedom and the gifts he has given us. Too often we choose to live in the far country, away from God's presence, fulfilling our lusts and desires. And God's gift of our freedom was risky, and we proved that it was. So in this first part of the story, we have a loving father's unfulfilled love. The father has risked, has given, has sacrificed, and there's nothing in return. Nothing but pain and disgrace as the gossip and stories about his absent son trickle back to break his heart. I wonder if we think of our yearning father in heaven when we stray into the far country. He loves with open arms and heart, but only receives the empty echo of our disobedience and disrespect. As a parent, perhaps you know the feeling of which I speak. You have a heart bursting with love for your child who spurned and ignored it as if it was just another one of your naggings. And you're left yearning, looking for the phone to ring or for the door to open. Don't we all go to the far country when we choose our own way over God's way? Don't we leave God weeping over us as Jesus wept over his people, saying in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, who are sent to her, how often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. The Puritan John Owen wrote, quote, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Unquote. Well, so the son in the far country lived a prodigal life, which we find later from the elder brother includes spending the money on prostitutes, but it left him broke and he's now eating with the swine, longing for better food. And it says, no one gave him anything in verse 16. We live in a world of ungrace. The world really doesn't care about us. It doesn't give to us as God our Father gives to us. Well, let's look at verses 17 through 24. I'm reading, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But it was when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet 
and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to be merry. A celebration. You see, it was in the far country that the scripture tells us in verse 17, the son came to himself. He had a change of heart. He wanted to experience life on his own, and he did. He found life in the far country was cold and ungracious. No one gave him anything, and we live in such a world. But at some point, the son had enough of the pig slop and subsistence survival living, and the text says he came to himself. I like the way that that language is used. He came to himself. Wasn't he already living as himself? Uh, I mean, really finding himself, as our contemporary lingo would phrase it. How many times have you heard people say, as they strike out on their own or desert their marriage or experiment with sin, I want to find myself? It has become a main theme of many a modern movie. But in this story, we see that doing his own thing, the son was not being true to his real self. He realized that the key to finding himself, realizing his true identity, was in his relationship to his father as deficient as that concept, as his concept of that was. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, he at least conceived of his father having enough love to pity him and pay him for his work like he did the hired servant. He decided to gamble on the rumors of a father's love. He would soon come to be surprised by his father's love and grace. What appears to have happened to the son in the far country is that he came to repentance. If we understand repentance to be a change of mind, or as I prefer to say, a change of heart, just as repentance should, it elicited the appropriate actions, well, we could say that it bore the fruits worthy of repentance. That's when the son rose up and returned to his father. But he came to himself. He had a change of heart. He came to repentance. What must have surprised the son was the overwhelming acceptance that his father showed him his father ran, which was culturally undignified as for an older man. He grabbed him and he kissed him. And the son was surprised because he felt himself unworthy to be called a son. He said, but when is anyone ever worthy to be called a son? Sonship is a gift. What he found was a father's love that showed unconditional acceptance. He was surprised by grace. The father fully forgave his sin. And the father's love is fulfilled as the son realizes who he is and always was. Though every son or daughter can choose to separate from their father's blessing, none can ever be separated from their father's love. This is where it's so important to acknowledge human freedom. I think the, the father's love is fulfilled because the son came to himself and chose to go home. Again, the language does not betray any hint of pressure from anyone or his father. He came to himself as a free moral agent. I stress this because there's a theological system of determinism that would simply explain the son's repentance as a surrender to irresistible grace. This system teaches that God manipulates or coerces the will to repent and believe. They would say the son must return because he is a true son, an elect son. Not only is this not seen here, but note how it eviscerates the story. In their version, the father would not have jumped up to meet his son, but simply would have looked at his watch and said, well, it's about time. I was expecting you. You had no choice but to return. And so the father's so-called love is forced upon a dispassionate, non-participating son who is merely doing what he was programmed to do. It occurs to me as I thought about this that the term irresistible grace is an oxymoron, contradictory term, just as much as costly grace, 
or cheap grace. From the viewpoint of the recipient, a gift can only be free, not costly, not cheap, not forced upon the recipient. Augustine also said, God gives where he finds empty hands. A man whose hands are full of parcels can't receive a gift. Unquote. The prodigal was not irresistibly drawn to his father. He was moved from somewhere deep within himself as he longed to fill the emptiness left by his selfishness. But see how the idea of irresistible grace violates the essential nature of love. A father can only determine to love, not to be loved. If the son was doing what he never could have resisted or what he was predestined to do, then the father is not honored, nor is his longing for his son's love fulfilled. But if the son, who chooses to gamble on his father's love, or maybe only his mercy, freely chooses to return, then the father's love and grace are fully vindicated. The father's love is vindicated. Isn't this the moral statement behind the story of Job? Job doesn't serve God because he is blessed or because he's chosen or because he's coerced in any way. Indeed, his severe God-initiated trials could easily have turned him against God. But as the test that Satan uh, was allowed to conduct by God shows, Job served God because he freely chose to. If it was for any other reason, the devil wins the day. When we choose God, God wins and Satan loses. So the father not only forgives, but restores his son. The son expected only enough mercy to acquire a position of a hired hand or on his father's ranch. Instead, he was surprised by his father's grace. He expected justice. He hoped for mercy. He was surprised by grace. A furious, outrageous grace. There's no bolted door, no lecture to that left his son squirming, no rebuke, only the joy of finding something that was lost. The father does not even allow his son to speak. Uh, his grace was lavished upon him with kisses of reception, a robe of honor, a ring of authority, and the sandals of a son, not of a slave. Then a special celebration was called that killed a fatted calf on his behalf. He says, my son who was dead is now alive. And of course, the son wasn't physically dead. He was not non-existent. It's a figure of speech. And this is where many determinists go wrong in their theology, thinking that death means non-existence or absolute inability. The son was dead, but he had the ability to choose to come back. And the son, sell, the son also chose uh, to be restored to his father. And so what was, what was lost is now found. Grace means that we don't have to run anymore. It's safe to turn ourselves in. Our Father just wants us to show up. Now, in verses 25 through 32, as we end the parable, we have another uh, incident with the elder son, the older brother of the prodigal. And sometimes this is ignored, but actually more material is given to the older son than the prodigal himself. And it seems to be one of the chief points of the parable. In verse 25, we read, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, 
Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. He resents the father's love and grace shown towards his irresponsible brother. Certainly, Jesus wants us to see the attitude here is that of the Pharisees who criticized him for eating with sinners. They felt their righteous behavior merited God's favor. The older brother boasted of his faithfulness and service as a basis for the father's benevolence. And in so doing, he showed that he was just as ignorant of the father's grace as his prodigal brother. The prodigal thought he could only deserve his father's grace if he did not sin. The older brother thought he could deserve God's grace because he performed well. Neither was correct. Both were prodigals from the father's grace. Both had to be invited to the father's feast. It's fascinating that in these two brothers' errors, we see the error with the gospel that is being preached today in much of Christendom. The error of the prodigal brother says, If I promise to be good and serve, I will deserve my father's favor. That would be salvation. The error of the elder brother says, Because I have served and done good, I prove that I deserve my father's favor. You see how, how one has front-loaded the gospel with a plea from promised human performance, and the other has back-loaded the gospel with a plea from human, proven human performance? For one, the father will owe him. For the other, the father, father already owes him. Neither comprehends the magnificence of grace apart from human performance. The key to the father's grace was not in his son's performances, but in the father's character. The father loved both sons, and thus he could free them to do their own will, forgive them for sinning, and restore them to all the blessings of son. So it is with God today. Uh, he gave us our freedom, but in so doing knew that he'd have to provide for our fall, and that is why he freely forgives and restores us when we sin. And that's why there's a superlative degree of rejoicing when a sinner repents. The father says of his prodigal, he was dead and is alive again. And twice he says he was lost and is found. The son was totally separated from the father, but not totally unable to choose to return. He was as lost as Adam, but now is as found as Jesus Christ. God lets us get lost, but never beyond the reach of his grace. If our sin were too great for God's grace, he would never have saved us in the first place. I think there's many helpful applications from this timeless story, and just let me name a few that stand out in my mind. First, if we're to grow in grace, we must take responsibility for our actions. That's another way of saying we, we must take responsibility for how we use our freedom. God has dignified us with the freedom to determine our moral destiny. We can choose to return his love or despise it. In so doing, we have the opportunity to glorify God or delight the devil. We can make the angels rejoice or the world scoff. We can waste our lives or use them for eternal glory and honor. The relationship that best describes the right use of our freedom is discipleship. Discipleship is choosing to love and serve God and his purposes above anyone, anything, and everything else. The choice, choice is truly ours to make. So, how will you respond to Jesus' invitation to become 
his devoted disciple. Similarly, to grow in grace depends on our cooperation with God's loving will and enabling grace. God is ready, willing, and able to help us grow, but the will is ours. We cooperate, are we cooperating with his will for our lives? It's also very hard for me to resist a word to fathers and parents. As hard as it is, if we are to be like our Heavenly Father, we must give our children the freedom to fail, the freedom to reject us, and have the grace to forgive and restore them. I found that a hard part of parenting is to bless our children more than they deserve, and what, unless and until we realize that God has done that with us. In all honesty, uh, I must say that in any way that my children have failed me or hurt me, I have done even more so to my Heavenly Father. This constant reminder helps, helps me uh, parent my children with grace. Parents must teach their children the unconditional love of God. And not, don't say things to them like, God loves good little girls and boys. Convince them of their acceptance. Lewis Smedes, who was professor of psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary, has identified three common sources of crippling shame. One, he says, is secular cult culture with its practice of ungraciousness. Two, is graceless religion full of guilt-inducing legalism. And three, is unaccepting parents. We can't underestimate the impact that our parental attitudes have toward the health and growth of our children. And these attitudes is their first awareness of God's attitude towards them. They long for our acceptance. William Shakespeare once wrote, O momentary grace of mortal men, which we more hunt for that the grace of, than the grace of God. One of my favorite stories from Ernest Hemingway's books comes uh, about a Spanish father who got in an argument with his son, and the son fled and left and disappeared. He ran away to Madrid, his son Paco. The father had a change of heart and wanted to reconcile with Paco. He didn't know how to find him, so he took out an ad in the, in the Madrid paper and said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Father. When Tuesday came, the father arrived at the square in front of the hotel, overwhelmed by the sight of 800 young men named Paco, each waiting for his father's forgiveness. Finally, let me say that God's grace exceeds all our sinful choices. Just as we're told in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. God's grace goes beyond forgiveness to blessings in abundance. This amazing grace doesn't encourage license, but it should elicit worship from us. Trying to comprehend the incomprehensible brings us to wonder and amazement. You see, we want a grace that we can comprehend. We need a grace that's incomprehensible. We want a grace that's free. We need a grace that's scandalous. We want grace that we can explain. We need a grace that's unexplainable. We want a grace that's amazing. We need a grace that's outrageous. We want a grace that's believable. We need a grace that is unbelievable. We want a grace that makes sense. We need a grace that makes no sense. We want a grace that, will, that others will accept. We need a grace that others will stumble over. We want a grace that others will understand. We need a grace that others will never understand. We want a grace that is true. 
We need a grace that's too good to be true. We want a grace that shows God's mercy. We need a grace that shows a Father's love. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.